Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's beginning to look a lot like there are not one, not two, not three, but possibly four, maybe even five different versions of a roadmap going on. The front pages today are filled with possible plans, might be scenarios and provisions for the opening of the economy. At least they're now directly talking about it. Here at Talk Radio, uh, we've been banging on about this for a very long time and there have been uh, a reasonably good selection of MPs uh, on the backbenches of the Tory party who have also uh, been keeping up the pressure. Graham Brady's among them, of course. Uh, we'll be talking coming up uh, in this hour to Geoffrey Clifton Brown, Deputy Chair of the Public Accounts Committee, about how he thinks uh, the lockdown should be managed, how the opening up of the economy should be done and how soon we can really start to see things moving. What we can say at least is that the schools will open and soon we will be back to normal. I'm absolutely sure of that. Julie Hartley Brewer not so sure. She thinks they're going to try and keep it going for as long as possible. The question is, why can't we do it sooner rather than later? Yesterday I predicted that Nicola Sturgeon would announce the opening of schools next week and sure enough that's what she did. However, she did issue the ominous warning that it might all have to go into reverse if infection rates go up again. And of course, as you would have heard uh, on the breakfast show this morning, uh, Dr Lee saying as long as they're still testing lots and lots of people, uh, the rate of infection will never go down low enough for them to say that they can actually lift it. Surely it's time now for Boris Johnson to put his money where his mouth is. We know he wants to do it. Uh, he just has to shake off uh, those sage scientists hanging onto his coattails, trying to pull him back from opening the door and walking straight through it. 0344 499 1000. Simon Corn is also here to explain just how the new hotel quarantine scheme is working, or rather not working, and what the travel business is doing about vaccine passports and the possibility uh, that people may have to show some kind of proof that they are clear of coronavirus before they get on a plane. Plus, Neil Oliver, of course, will bring us the latest from his base in snowy Scotland. I'll be asking him what on earth is going on with the inquiry into the SNP's handling of the Alex Salmon situation. It all seems to have got a bit quiet ever since the Spectator managed to get permission to unveil a load of evidence that would back what Alex Salmon has been saying. 0344 499 1000. As ever, of course, we want to hear your stories, your experiences, your hopes, and indeed your fears. And we'll be talking to a children's doctor about just how damaging this lockdown has been for our nation's young people. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's time to say a very, very good morning to Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, Conservative MP for the Cotswolds, but also uh, from the Public Accounts Committee as well. Wrote a very interesting piece in The Telegraph the other day uh, about why it's time to lift the lockdown and how that should happen. Sir Geoffrey, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thank nice you very much. You. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, we at Talk Radio here, as you probably know, have been banging the drum for, um, you know, the lockdown to be lifted sooner rather than later, not least because of the sort of collateral damage that it's causing, not just to the economy, but also, of course, to, um, you know, the health of the nation, the health of our children and all of that. So, I mean, look, I'm, I'm very pleased to see that Downing Street's now having the conversation. Um, how do you think that's all going? Well, we've got the announcement by the Prime Minister on Monday. Mm. So we don't, there's been an awful lot of speculation. We don't know what he's going to say. Um, I, the only thing I would really say is, um, the, 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 I think he's been made more cautious because of what happened with the Christmas, Christmas easing of lockdown. Yeah. But of course, we're in a very different situation now 
we know that the first four priority cohorts have been vaccinated. Mm. So every week that goes by, more and more people are being uh, protected by the vaccination. I've now been offered a vaccination. I'm 68. I've been offered a vaccination. I'll be having one in the next week or two. Uh, So more and more people are being protected. And what I would simply say uh, through your programme to the Prime Minister is don't be too cautious because as you've got on your programme, you've got a children's psychiatrist coming on, talking about children's mental health. We know that businesses are being hugely damaged. Now, I, don't, I know we, we want to be, be cautious and not make the national health be overwhelmed again. But on the other hand, if we're too cautious, we're going to do more damage to people's mental health, more damage to businesses. And what I was saying in my article in The Telegraph uh, was to actually gradually open up the economy, going back to the tiered system again mm. and areas like mine in the Cotswolds where there was always been and very still is very low levels of infection start opening up the economy in those areas and see what happens you can always bring it back a bit but to have a blanket too cautious approach for the entire nation is not the right way to go forward no and I my, my sense is that that Boris's instinct is to do precisely what you're suggesting Sir Jeffrey however uh, he's being sort of surrounded by people telling him not to do that uh, all of whom are the last ones in the room, it seems to me. You know, you go in and you tell him what you think. He listens to what we say. and then, But then the last guys he's talking to, these sage scientists, uh, who seem to have a sort of unerring fear of the outside world and who seem to be trying to kind of cocoon us all from any kind of risk whatsoever, which is madness to me. Well, the, the, the thing is, uh, Mike, there's a balance of risk to be taken here. You can lock everybody down forevermore mm. and hopefully extinguish the COVID virus. But on the other hand, you're actually doing huge damage to people's lives by continuing to m- keep them locked down. So there's a balance of risk here. And I think we've got to say very clearly to the prime minister, you've got to explain to the nation because people are getting pretty fed up with being locked down at the moment. Yeah. When the, uh, Let's have a roadmap, a realistic roadmap out of this lockdown and that realistic program should include hospitality uh, industries as from easter onwards after all they were not getting their christmas receipts they're unlikely to get their easter receipts if they don't get their may bank holiday receipts we'll find more and more of them go out of business and people will lose their jobs so this is a really serious moment in the whole covid virus uh, episode and i would say to the prime minister just be equally caring about the economy, caring about people's freedom, their mental health, as you are about how many people catch COVID. As long as the Mm. hospitals are not being overwhelmed, then try it gradually in the tiers system. Yes, and hospitals have not been overwhelmed, never were overwhelmed, despite the fact that we saw the biggest uh, leap in cases in January than we've ever seen, despite the fact that there was a winter crisis in the NHS, like there always is. You know, it somehow managed to, to keep everything under wraps and it managed to not lose control of the situation. But the thing about um, uh, opening up pubs and opening up hospitality and opening up other businesses, I mean, we talked to a lot of people here, as you can imagine. We spoke yesterday to someone from the uh, British Beer and Pub Association who said, you know, breweries, for example, need about a three week sort of lag time so that they can start brewing beer again because they're not brewing beer at the moment because they can't sell it. However, if you take if you say, well, let's get beer uh, into pubs by the beginning of April, you need to tell them sort of at the beginning of March so that they can prepare. right? Mike, you said some really important things. Let me comment on one or two of the things you said in that uh, question. Firstly, you said there is always a winter spike in the NHS, which there is. We always seem to end up with a flu crisis. We mm. don't hear about flu nowadays. Right. Uh, the cases in hospitals at the moment, largely, I think, because of the vaccination of the most vulnerable group over 80 are coming down by a thousand a week. So that's all going in the right direction. The number of deaths mercifully is going in the right direction. So, I mean, that all needs to be considered. And you're absolutely right about the uh, pubs association. When we locked down last time there were uh, thousands of pubs that had to throw beer away because of the short notice they were given on the lockdown let's not do the same thing and whatever boris says on monday let's have a planned lockdown so that everybody has time to adjust time to make the beer get it into the pubs whatever it is when they're allowed to open but let's for goodness sake in some areas have a trial period of opening and just see what happens 
Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Because there does seem to me that there are some people in the Cabinet, I'm not going to name any names, as I don't want to get you into any trouble uh, to get you to, to, to nod sagely, but the point is that some people seem to be completely unaware or unwilling to take notice of those people who are being damaged by the lockdown outside of COVID, the collateral damage people, as I call it, you know, um, because that's a massive thing now. But it seems as though some people in government just are not willing to even consider that. And I don't know why, Mike, if they looked at their emails, every um, member of parliament must be getting emails like I am mm. of desperate stories of people who are surviving in this lockdown. They can't help but know what's going on out there. And they should balance that against what the medics are saying. As I said earlier in your interview, you can lock down people, everybody forevermore, and probably stamp out this virus. But at the same time, you'll have done huge damage to people's mental health. You'll have wiped out the economy. We can have a really big job when we are allowed to be unlocked, getting the economy back going again, getting people's jobs up and running again. That's the real priority, because just as much damage is being done by locking down the economy too long as it is actually unlocking too soon. So Boris really needs to come up with a realistic roadmap on Monday. And above all, I think he needs to give parliamentarians and the country as a whole much more evidence that he's considered the wider economy. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And how concerned are you, Sir Geoffrey, about the way that this has all been done in terms of, for example, I mean, I was quite shocked, as many people were, when Matt Hancock got up last week and declared that there would be a 10-year prison sentence for people uh, who lied on a, on a piece of paper about where they'd been on holiday. Now, of course, we don't want anybody doing that. But nevertheless, the ability of the, Se the Secretary of State for Health to suddenly impose a new uh, maximum prison sentence on a crime which previously didn't exist does seem to be slightly concerning for those of us who believe in democracy. Well, this is ridiculous, and I protested about it in no uncertain terms, as did others of my colleagues in private. The first case where a constituent faces a horrific murder and somebody gets less than 10 years, mm. they're really going to come down on this policy. And the first person that's sentenced for doing something relatively minor... Uh, that gets sentenced under it. Mm. There's going to be a massive media campaign and they're going to have to alter it. The law is not something you use as some form of government's communications agency. Right. There are other ways of doing that. The law is there as a serious uh, instrument for when people commit serious crimes. And it's got to be proportionate. The, the sentence has got to be proportionate for the crime. And if people uh, think it's not proportionate, then they will start to ignore it. That's mm. the danger. Well, I think that has been the difficulty with this latest lockdown, because I would say anecdotally, I don't know what you see where you are, Sir Geoffrey, but anecdotally, people are more likely now to be out and about than they were back in the first lockdown from uh, of March last year, partly because many people have to go out and about because they have to work. They can't sit around at home all the time. And we seem to have become this split country now into those who can work from home in rather nice little front rooms and studies. And they've got lovely Apple laptops that they can use. And the people who are the real working people of this country, the men and women who physically have to be in a place of work in order to make any money. Well, that's the difficulty. If people start to feel that the government's policy is unreasonable, and I have to say, I think people have behaved wonderfully throughout this pandemic. Mm. Of course, there have been a few that ignored it. But I think people on the whole have behaved wonderfully because they've understood the danger. But if we lock down too long, particularly when an increasing proportion of the population is being protected by the vaccine, they will start to ignore the rules more and more. And then that could be a real moment of danger. So whatever the prime minister announces on Monday, it's got to be realistic. It's got to be proportionate. And it's got to show parliamentarians, parliament, because after all, we have to renew these regulations at the end of March. He's got to show us that he's actually done a proper feasibility study into the damage that's being done to the rest of the economy so that we can balance that against the how long the lockdown is going to be imposed for. Yes. And I realise that once again that I'm, I'm stepping into areas which you may not wish to go into. But in terms of Rishi Sunak and his budget proposals, which will be coming up soon, are you one of those who thinks that, uh, like me, the, stim the, the stimulus should come from government to start the economy going again, rather than uh, uh, the stimulus coming from, from the private sector, uh, which has been battered about, uh, unlike the public sector, which really doesn't have an awful lot of spare cash at the moment. And I'm very much against the imposition of any new taxes. So, Mike, you raise a really important point. I've got businesses in my constituency who are going to lose their lifetime savings, lose their homes, 
and they're going to be given want to be given some form of incentive to want to actually start those businesses up again if they can. And the bulk of this economy in this country is made up of medium and small sized businesses, ordinary people doing a business from their home that just need that little bit of encouragement mm. and help in the budget. And that is the only way we're really going to get the economy up and running again. So it's a really, really serious point how we get these small businesses up and running again. Yes, absolutely right. And as far as the way that SAGE has sort of gripped this particular crisis, and there might be, uh, I'm sure, those who would say that they've done a good job in some ways and they've kept uh, the, the, the Prime Minister honest. They've given him all the information they've had. He's made decisions based on what they've told him. But I was asking this to someone the other day, you know, how much of a role did SAGE have before all of this happened? And how much do they cost us? in terms of, uh, you know, actual hard cash, because there seems to be an awful lot of them. Every so often you get another one popping up on TV who you've never heard of, uh, raving on about how we're going to have another spike in the summer if we unlock too quickly. And I'm just slightly concerned that, uh, you know, we didn't vote for any of these people, uh, and I don't particularly uh, like what many of them do. So <laughs> we took evidence, as you were kind enough to say in your opening remarks, on the Public Accounts Committee, and we published our report last Friday. Yeah. One of the th interesting things in that report is the role that the vaccine task force under the fantastic uh, leadership of Kate Bingham, when she was uh, put into her role, unpaid role, last April, that task force had no idea whether they were going to be able to find a vaccine that worked, where it was going to come from, how it was going to be manufactured in millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. And within nine months, she'd got a vaccine that worked the government had invested in the manufacturing process. And here we are with a vaccine that is beginning to lead us out of lockdown. Mm. That process normally takes 10 years. Right. But it was somebody from the private sector with the right skills working with the public sector that has amazing, enabled this hugely successful vaccine program to work. Now, we've got to do the same thing, getting us out of lockdown, get this test and trace thing working get us out of lockdown gradually. And, and, and I think actually with the vaccination programme, we should be able to get out of lockdown much quicker than some of the speculation. I've seen reports this morning that people are talking about some of the business not being able to open till July. I, know. I mean, that, that is just so pessimistic. I mean, you know, I, I, it's just it would, it would if I was one of those businesses, I would be in despair this morning. So I really do think the Prime Minister owes it to those people to announce a realistic programme on Monday. I think you're absolutely right. I think Kate Bingham, uh, her next project should be the Home Office. We put her in charge of that. She can sort out the police. She can sort out the judiciary. She can sort out the uh, border force. You know, Bob's your uncle. This woman has clearly uh, got success written all over her. Well, the thing about Kate was that she'd been in the, in the financial business. She knew uh, how to assess risk. And this is really what the Prime Minister needs to be doing at the moment. It's how much risk do you want to be taking? But there's risks on both sides of this argument. And I think he's really got to now actually really show some leadership and show us what a realistic roadmap is out of this whole uh, dilemma and not to be still here in July, or August, in the middle of the summer when the tourist season should be at its height, still partially locked down. Mm. We should be able to do it much, much quicker than that. I was saying in my article, really, that many of my hospitality uh, industries that have been so badly damaged really, uh, at least initially, should be allowed to have a trial from Easter onwards, from the beginning of April onwards. That's the sort of... We're getting the schools back to business, uh, hopefully, fairly quickly after March the 8th. And that is something we need to be... That is a real priority for us. And we don't want to be dragging that out for weeks. That should happen quite quickly after March the 8th, so that everybody knows, teachers, parents, know where they stand on this and whether they've got to teach virtually or whether they've got to teach wholly in the classroom. Because that's still another unanswered issue at the moment issue at the moment and we need to sort that one out first and then get a, a lockdown unlocked down for the rest of the of the economy absolutely right i'll leave you with a tweet that i've just received from a listener called pete who says i'm willing to take the risk of pubs opening in my area first this afternoon would be just fine <laughs> and i think an awful <laughs> well, lot of people feel think... like that you know what I'd say to Pete was, well, if you're prepared to perhaps have a takeaway uh, <laughs> beer or eat it in the pub garden, that might be the answer. The other thing is when we do let pubs open, they've got to stick to the rules. I mean, we, too, we saw too many pubs with people actually not sticking to the rules. And I think that when we, when we decide what the uh, lockdown, unlockdown plan is, 
then everybody must stick to the rules. That's really, really yeah. important. Because otherwise we will go backwards again and we don't want that. No, of course. And I can say with, with absolute surety that uh, in all of the pubs and all of the places that I go in London and, and did go to when they were open were compre- incredibly uh, well run, very well managed. Uh, and all the people in there were doing exactly what you would have expected them to do. Um, so there are there are obviously, as you say, the odd miscreant here and there. But by and large... But the British population wants this to be over, are willing to do almost anything to make it be over. And I think largely will will do exactly as, as they should. Mike, they will do it if they feel the plan is reasonable. Yes. But once there's a widespread sentiment that the plans are being unreasonable, then we risk a, a widespread dis, uh, uh, you know, ignoring the rules. Mm. Mm. So I think that's why Boris is at some moment of, uh, of real peril at the moment he needs to uh, actually weigh up these risks very carefully on both sides but above all just try in an area like mine and just see what happens absolutely right so jeffrey clifton brown great to talk to you thank you very much indeed a rallying cry uh, for the freedom of this country to be restored so those of us who know what to do with it take it away uh, from these sage maniacs right take these people out of the room stop listening to them because in the end They will never want the lockdown to be lifted. They will never find any reason to stop locking it down. They will keep finding reasons for locking us up and not letting us go anywhere because these people are risk averse. They don't like risk. They don't like the chance that somebody might get sick. As I've said before, they would ban driving if they could to stop people having car accidents. These are not the sort of people that should be running this country. It's a joke. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Time to say a very good afternoon to Neil Oliver. Neil, welcome back to the show. Hi, Mike. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. I mean, I did sympathise with your piece about the boiling frog because uh, in all sorts of different ways, it made made a lot of sense uh, in terms of the feeling that we all have of being sort of trapped in something that we're not quite sure how to get out of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd noticed I'd, I'd heard a lot of people using the metaphor of the boiling frog over yeah. the last hello, and it, you know, it's this idea that if you put a, a frog in cold water and then gradually turn up the heat, it, it won't notice and it will stay there until actually it gets to boiling point. It's worth pointing out that biologists have had a look at this over the years, and it's it is a myth. Right. So if you drop a, fro- a frog into boiling water, it won't jump out; it will die. Right. Uh, and if you put it in cold water and wait till the heat comes up; it just eventually leaves before yes. it's in any it's in any danger but the analogy i was trying to make was that lockdown is a lid on the pot so that <laughs> even though we're all frogs and we know that the temperature's getting hotter and we know it's becoming a bit of a threat to life yeah. but we can't get out because of the the lid provided by lockdown that was really just the you know, the, the, the point i was trying to make but yeah. like you report all the time i listen to uh, julia hartley brewer in the, in the in the morning and I, you know she uh into heartbreaking uh, soul-searching uh, interviews that she does with with people mm. who are telling their lockdown stories, and you can feel you can feel the consequences of people being poached in a in water that's being you know that, that's becoming unbearable, yeah. uh, metaphorically speaking. Uh, and I, I just you know, it's got it's we're, we're there we're we're, we've, we're past the crisis point, and uh, and too many people have been hurt too much. They really are. I mean, we spoke to Dave in Shrewsbury earlier on, who just called in this morning, and he said, we're just fed up. We don't want to live by rules anymore. And I think there's going to be a lot of that. You know, once this uh, the lifting of the lockdown starts to happen, I mean, you can tell, no doubt, that there will be people in Downey Street saying, oh, we've got to be really careful how we do it, and we've got to try and uh, arrange for people's behaviour to be this rather than that. And I find that quite insidious in any event. You know, the idea that somebody's sitting in a government building paid for by us telling each other how we should be behaving. I don't like the sound of it. No, I think it's, I think it's going to be very painful coming out of it. I think it's, it's like, a, I don't know, when someone's been, maybe been in a, in a medically induced coma and you, you, know, you, you don't just um, expect them to leap out of bed you know, the minute you stop applying the drugs that have put them into that coma. Mm. It's a long, slow process. I think I've heard... Uh, talk that I don't agree with about getting the kids back into school and kind of pressure cooking them to to continue that analogy of boiling water, you know, longer days, no holidays to speed them up. I think that's, that's desperately wrong. I Mm. think the kids, especially uh, the the ones that, I mean, my my youngest is 12, but I think they just need to get back into school and, 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 and meet each other again and get to know what it's like being in a classroom with, with 30 kids in it. And, and get uh, familiar again and comfortable again with 
uh, teachers. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they should be going on school trips. Maybe they should be going on lots of walks together. Maybe, they, you know, they should just be being reacclimatized to what it is to be at school. Because yeah. uh, in short, I don't think there's, any, there's no way to quickly catch this up. We've had a year lost, and I think it's going to take at least that long to, to catch up. I, I feel, I've always felt it's a bit like in the, in the disaster movies when there's a tsunami and the first thing that happens is the, the, the tide just disappears. Mm. Water goes. Yeah, That's where we are at the moment. And then the, then the big wave has built up out over the horizon sort of style and, and it comes sweeping back in. I think we're about to be hit in many respects by something of a tsunami of the economic reality and the and as it begins to unfold what's been done to people mm. emotionally in terms of you know relationships marriages uh, obviously livelihoods businesses yeah. just the, every shred every every thread of the weave of our society that great complicated tapestry you know has been rent and torn and it's going to take a long time to get over this there's going to have to be a rehabilitation process goodness knows lasting for years yes i think you're absolutely right because i think i told you before when the first lockdown happened i didn't go to see my kids or their mother for like eight weeks or something like that uh, for, for a variety of reasons uh, that we all thought that was for the best but when i finally went to see them for the day it was quite a strange experience not because i hadn't seen anyone because i had been coming into work but because i hadn't seen them aside from on a kind of video call we were all kind of, we, at one point, we all sat in the garden and just didn't say anything. It was yeah, quite, don't you, quite don't, odd. Don't you find, uh, I, I travel a lot. <laughs> well, I used to. <laughs> this, is, this is going to be the thing, right? I used to do blah, I, you know. I used to I used to travel and I'd be away. I mean, I, I've, I've been away sometimes. I've been away from the, the house for the you know, best part of half a year, mm. more than one occasion, and just staying in touch remotely. And then you come back and you're so desperate to get back you, you know, you fantasize about it mm. and you finally you make the trip back and you open the door and you come in and, you know, often the first thing you do within the first half hour is you have a fight, <laughs> you, know, right. you know, with your nearest and dearest right. because the, the the anticipation has been so much on both sides and you're so, everyone's so desperate mm. for all to be this lovely homecoming. Right. You know, as, as often as not, there's a right ding dong <laughs> because it's, it's just too intense. Right. I think there'll be a, I think there'll be a lot of that as as people meet each other again. There's a lot of relationships have been put into suspended animation, ah. and when people collide with one another again, goodness me! Of course, and also, <laughs> I mean, even just even just out and about on the streets, because we, I mean, you know, I don't know about you, but I I have changed the way that I actually walk now. I mean, you know, I walk from a car park where I park my car every day. Uh, it's about I don't know, quarter of a mile to the office. And I go past the hospital, as 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 strangely uh, as it would seem, where they had the first COVID case uh, in Britain uh, in uh -huh. Guy's Hospital, right? So I'm aware of the fact that it's a hospital, and there's a lot of people walking about. Some of them wearing masks, some of them not. But I genuinely walk on the other side of the road to stay away from the people that are coming the other way, or I walk in the middle of the road, which is you know. And I mean, I, I never used to think about how I walked. I know. I do that. I, I definitely have been doing that. But I, I live in a... Stirlingsk, I mean, it, it's technically a city, but it's, it's really just... It's a town yeah. in terms of its size and, and scope. You know, you walk around it and... It's about the size you know, of Blackheath, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's, <laughs> it's small. And um, I, I, I nonetheless, I, I haven't been... I've, I do go into the town. Because certainly I've got to go and get food and, and, and such like. But apart from that, I just don't go in. If I don't have to go in, mm. I avoid it yeah. strenuously. Because I, I don't like the, that post-apocalyptic atmosphere right. of the of people and the masks and all the rest of it. I just stay away from it rather than anything else. And so yeah. I've been I, I just walk in the you know on the fringes of countryside really, uh, and the only people I meet are dog walkers. Yeah, uh, you know. So I've I have uh, absented myself from society as much as I can because simply because I don't like looking at it. Right. I don't like the emptiness. I don't like the quiet. Then you know the, the shut shops. Some of them are boarded up. Mm. You know, there's businesses that are like you know gone to the extent that they're obviously not coming back. And I, I just find it too um, upsetting. Yeah. So, so yeah, I've, I've I've changed I've changed where I go beyond necessity. Yeah. I just keep out of it. And that's the thing about traveling as well, because I mean, the one place I did go 
last year was 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 a sort of four day trip to the Isle of Wight, which we managed to do. Um, but that I hated the travelling of it because, which is normally something I would love to do, because we were on a ferry from Portsmouth to to the Isle of Wight, and everyone was wearing a mask, you know, and it was just awful. And I just, I mean, one of the things that, as I've said many times, I need to go and do is see my mother. I mean, she started saying um, to my sister, who I spoke to the other night, you know, she was asked, "What's the one thing that you want?" And she's like, "I want my son to come and see me." And so, you know, she's like um, desperate to see me. I'm desperate to see her. But can I go that long wearing a mask all that way on a transatlantic plane? I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, it's 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 distressing, and I, I think um, I think a lot because of the way a lot of it has been covered in the you know the mainstream media, a lot of the broadcast media has been so uh, blinkered and focused only on COVID. Yeah, uh, it's so it has to be it has to be about COVID. It has to be about that. I think uh, there's a maybe a, a, an unawareness in the general populace about what's coming, mm. and, and I don't I don't mean to say that in a you know doom and gloom sense. No, it, it, it's not just that. I just feel that because we haven't been as a nation, we haven't really been looking apart from just through a kind of a you know it's like looking through looking at the world through a you know through a pen, <laughs> you know, with the, with the inside yeah. when you. Look at that! It's just that that tiny, that tiny bit of the world that that's been focused upon, and all the all everything else has been happening, and when when people are suddenly confronted by it, I think it's going to be very upsetting. I, I, I genuinely do, and I and I think there's going to be a, a, a we're going to have to find ways to to come back together, mm. and it, and it it would be naive and foolish, I think, to imagine that you can atomize society in the way that we have and isolate so many people in the way that we have and, and for that to be swiftly uh, remedied. Mm. And, and, I, and, as you, and as you say, as you say, as far as the schools are concerned, I mean, it's, it's almost as though the people who are in charge think it's all about the learning process and it's all about, you know, academia. It's not about academia at all, is it? I mean, it's not about whether or not you've learnt, uh, you know, your 10 times table or your 8 times table or the algorithm of something or other. You know, it's about, you, as you say, the whole sociology of, of mixing with people and mingling with people. I mean, what does it mean? I mean, I, I, I didn't get to sort of analyse fully the whole Nicola Sturgeon uh, statement yesterday. All I gathered from what she said was that some schools are going to open next week, but basically if everybody doesn't behave, then we're going to shut them all again. <laughs> For sure, that will happen. But uh, yes, my uh, I've got I've got three. My eldest is in sixth year, and right. she isn't going back. She, she's not been sort of recalled. Uh, and my youngest, he's twelve. He's not going back. Right. Although he's at high school, he's in first year. But my my middle boy, he, he's in uh, S four, and he's been sort of summoned. He, he's been recalled. Right. And they're going to go back in, and we're not we're not quite sure exactly how that will how that will uh, take shape. But they're going back in, and, and yeah, I'm sure all the normal, all the usual caveats apply. And mm. I'm sure if there's so much as a flicker on the R number or anything else, that, that there'll be a there'll be a, a rethink. But, but they are but they are going back in, and they're, they're, my uh, my boy is he's desperate to get back to school in many ways. Yeah, uh, you know for the and but but he, and he wants back into the social, the social side. You know the the, the mixing side of it. But you know you're, there's also a sense of trepidation about him because he's been away from it and out of it for so long. Mm. That it's quite a it's quite a nerve wracking it's quite a nerve wracking prospect for him and them. You know, we're in contact with some of his friends as well, and there's this sort of there's this sort of air of uncertainty about them. Yeah. But but you're absolutely right. The the school is about it is about education, of course. It is. But if you if you remember when your kids come in from school, they don't really talk about lessons. They, what they talk about is everything else that happened. Yeah. She said, he said, mm. and then this happened, and it, you know, it's the it's life. It's life that that they talk about, and and it's those it's those you know cloths from rough to smooth that, yeah. that buff off the rough corners on on kids and and turn them into the and let them become you know the, the people that they've got the potential to be, and the the education is a you know is a very important you know con, con, uh, component of that. I mean education at Duco to lead out, you know it's not about ramming stuff into kids. It's about drawing out mm. that which is latent within them. That's what education in, in its ideal form is supposed to be. And you don't do that with a, you know, via a, a computer screen. It's a, education in the traditional sense is a very sociable, it's a very sociable thing, collegiate. 
it's that idea of, of being together with other people and it and you don't get it by gallery view on a on a zoom call no. or a, or any of the other things it's the we're, we're tribal physical social creatures and it it's been around the sights and the sounds and the smells and the atmosphere of it that that all coalesces and comes together as the as the learning experience you know school is a world it's mm. not a, it's not something you look at through a window no and it's the walk home with your mates it's the whatever oh. it is that you do you know the walk you know the meeting up and 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 you know the gossiping it's all of that and similarly oh. you know for, for for people who are have left the education process i mean i know people who have got new jobs uh, since this lockdown started or, or we're about to start a new job just when it came in who've never been to the office because they started a job and they've never met physically the people they work with no i think i think that's too much i think that you know the technology is so clever well undoubtedly i mean the, t- the technology that's been available to us is extraordinary in, in its reach and its flexibility and all the rest of it but it's machines and we are not machines you know we're made of meat yes and they're made of you know we're made we're made of we're made of carbon and they're made of silica yeah. you know we're, we're, we're two different things and that which you know machines learn from each other you know IPROM programmers and all the rest of it and self-programming computers that that is in the, in the nature of it but we are different uh, and it's not purely by interacting with technology that we become people that mm. uh, you know we become more i think the more time you spend with with machines the, the more mechanical you become when in reality what you need is to become more human yes and similarly, I suppose, if we look at the um, the politicians of this world that which we now inhabit, you know, they're going to have to go back into reverse. And I'm not certain that they will be able to do this, by the way, um, going back to kind of asking our permission to do things rather than just doing things and telling us we have to go along. I think I think across the board, I think the, the political class has been has been exposed. I think a very bright light has been turned on the reality of, of the political world and the extent to which it's just become a public relations exercise. Mm. It's, well, it, it, well, it's very dispiriting, really. I think so much of what's been done has been for, for the sake of how things look. You know, the sort of yeah. reputation management that's yeah. woven through everything that, that's being done. And I, you know, my, I, my heart cries out for for somebody who would who would come forward and stand up and say something profoundly honest, I, I would I would begin to look favourably upon somebody that stepped forward and said that was a mistake. Yeah, we ought not to have done that. Mm. You know, I'll be quite honest with you. We got an enormous fright when we saw what was coming out of the east. Yeah, and when we first glimpsed it in Italy, we got a real fright and were only human. But, uh, you know, I'm here today to to say that we should not have done things the way that we did. And I I promise you now that we will not seek to uh, tackle another virus or another emergency in that way. And you have my word on it. You know, I would I would start to see that person as a leader. Yeah. And I would, you know, not that I cry, not that I'm desperate to be led by anyone, but I would start to take that kind of Mm. language uh, seriously, I want someone to stand up and do a kind of a mea culpa and say that was wrong because yeah. people people make mistakes. It's not the it, it's it's important, but but it, it's also without value your mistake unless you acknowledge it right. and move forward from it. Well, this is it because the re- the raison d'etre for everything that they've done is impossible to prove. You know, because all they can say is, "Well, look what might have happened if we didn't do it." And you might as well, you know, shout at the moon. You might as well howl at the sea. You know, you have no clue what would have happened or what might have happened or how much worse it might have been. Just don't know. Yeah. No, I, I just cry out for honesty. Yeah. That's, really, that's really what I'm hungry for. And I wouldn't, and I'm sure many other people wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't judge it and say, ah, well, now you, you admit you've made a mistake, so you have to go and live on a desert island now and never, never rejoin polite society. Yeah. I, I think quite the contrary. I've always, you know, I've always felt it, you know, in the in the in the Scottish independence, uh, uh, you know, campaigning that went on. I felt at the time that if someone had had stood up in, in 2014 and said, hypothetically, if we do this, it's going to be really hard, probably for about a quarter of a century. Yeah, it's going to be really tough. I, I won't kid you. If you, you know, whatever your life's like now, you know, if someone had if someone had said that, uh, but within it had been inspirational. Mm in amongst the honesty, yes. then that would have been a different facet of the same argument. 
you know, but the but the myth that was put about at the time was that you could do something so constitutionally revolutionary and nothing really would change. Right. You know, but it would just be an independent country. Everything would be the same. But that was dishonest. Yes, it's, and I think I, and I think that's the trouble. We now live in a in a time where the truth uh, is very much evaded by politicians. They don't seem to want to address the truth at all. And the tragedy for us now is that we're not getting any closer to it because, in fact, we're getting further away. Because this time last year, um, we were told three weeks to flatten the curve, um, and also we were able to go away on holiday, and we were booking holidays in March to go away in August, and that was fine. Now, apparently, it's not. Well, I've, we, you and I have in this in this sort of evolving conversation that we've had over the months. I, I think we we'll, we'll both sort of agree that from time to time we both drift away from the the minutiae of it. I, mm. I I can't be bothered to keep up with it with with what's being said because it, so much of it feels like we're being played. Yeah, you know, you feel them moving towards say, you know keeping us keeping us quiet. You know, giving us the happy pills. Well, I only found out. That we, I only found out the weekend that apparently you're allowed to go outside. Uh, in England, anyway, um, to meet somebody for exercise, but only standing up. And I'm thinking, you're just going, what? I mean, who comes up with this nonsense? And what if I want to lie down with them and do some, you know, horizontal exercising? Apparently, that's not allowed. Um, so, know. you know, it's ridiculous. I know. What if you, and what if you just got a bit out of breath and needed to sit down on a park bench? You know, is it is it legal to collapse? Apparently and not. No, apparently you'll be lifted. You'll have your collar felt by a plod who will come along yeah. and, and whisk you away uh, and put some handcuffs on you. I mean, it's just madness. Yeah, you're not an, uh, you're not allowed to faint and you're not allowed to be exhausted. I I, I think I, I really I really do feel potentially. I'm trying to be optimistic. We ought to we ought to collectively look back on all this and and see that there's. There are some fundamental things that we need to be, uh, that we've been made aware of. Some of the realities about the way that we, we tend to relate to one another, and we really, we really should learn from it. Mm. You know, a lot. There's a lot of scary talk about great resets and 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 cultural revolutions and all the rest of it. Which you know, put that to one side. Yeah. But I think we've been shown that we have tended to be. We have. We had been sort of sleepwalking down a path. But a bright light was turned on where that path was actually going. You know, we were sort of moving into something a bit hazy and a bit foggy and a bit dark. Couldn't really see it. Well, the lockdown, bang, turned the light on. We saw it. And to me, that's not good. Where we were, where we were going and, and that to which lockdown accelerated us is not good. Mm. And, we, and we need to think about that again. And, I mean, my goodness, with, within the political establishment, the political class, there needs to be a, a revolution there. You know that we've, end, that we've ended up in this situation where the, the government w was saying one thing and the so-called opposition were just their only response would be, "Yeah, well, you should have done more of that earlier." Yeah, yeah. There's no and this this idea of a you know of checks and balances and people's feet being held to the fire. It just wasn't the only people whose feet have been held to the fire. Are, you know, people struggling to keep their businesses going and to home educate their kids. Their yeah. their feet are in the fire. Everybody else is is tucked up warm and. In, in furlough and the rest. Yeah. It's true. Neil, I'm, sadly, we're out of time. I was going to ask you how the puppy's doing, but um, you probably have to answer that with a sort of one-word answer. <laughs> Great. Right there. Mercifully, she didn't start howling. <laughs> oh, excellent. Good stuff. Brilliant. Listen, I'll talk to you next week. Neil Oliver, uh, up in Scotland, archaeologist, TV presenter, of course, man of sound mind uh, and body, and also, of course, a great philosopher of our times. The point about it is all this. You know, one day we will look back on all this, and it might even seem funny. But not at the moment. Not right now. We're not ready for that yet. We're ready to come out. We're ready uh, to walk down the street again without trying to avoid people wearing masks, aren't we? This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, talking to um, Neil Oliver there about the whole uh, state that we are in and the year that we have had and the way that people are feeling, uh, it will come as no surprise to you uh, to follow on from that uh, that a piece of the Times today, uh, after, a, uh, after a, a sort of survey has been done of British attitudes to China, uh, says this. Most Britons feel Beijing is critical threat as anti-China feelings grow. Now, you can't tell me that's not 
not related to what came out of Wuhan uh, and the coronavirus epidemic uh, that started around about this time last year, I suppose. Let's talk now to Sam Armstrong from the Henry Jackson Society. Sam, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I I suppose we shouldn't be surprised about this, but we're at an interesting kind of... um, point with China, aren't we? Because we've got the end of the Donald Trump era uh, in the US. We've got Joe Biden, who may or may not be um, more likely to be friends with China. Uh, We've got, of course, our own relationship with them. We're leaving the EU. Uh, We've left the EU, in fact. Um, What do you think is the is the sort of the short term, say, you know, 2021 vision between Britain and China? Well, here's the thing. In a, in a sense, Mike, you're, you're bang on. There is nothing surprising about this poll. We know the public have got a very um, cynical, very sceptical view of China. Mm. They recognise it for what it is, a country that lies, that commits human rights abuses, that threatens our way of life. But I'm afraid, sadly, our politicians don't necessarily seem to agree. I've seen a number of issues over the years where the politicians and public have been diametrically opposed. Yeah. But what this poll shows us is that on this issue, they're perhaps even further apart than they were on the question of the the EU or on culture war issues. They couldn't be further apart. While the government is talking about more trade, more investment, doing more business with China, the public is saying, no, no, this is a serious threat. And actually, I think it's one of these very interesting issues in which the establishment is really pissing itself against the people yet again. Yeah. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Because, I mean, I remember in Theresa May's era, we were talking to China about the 5G network being set up by Huawei. We were talking about uh, collaborations on nuclear power plants and all that kind of thing. And I must confess, uh, I have no idea what's going on with either of those situations. I mean, has that all changed now or are we still talking to them about that? Well, the government were pulled uh, kicking and screaming, I think it's fair to say, on Huawei into into ditching that. But as of now... The, the Chinese nuclear developer CGN, a firm that has been um, uh, caught up in court cases over the stealing of espionage uh, of nuclear secrets in, in the United States, is still bidding to build two further power stations and is still uh, constructing Hinkley Point C uh, in, down in Somerset. So we, we're going to be left in a situation in which within a few years, according to our calculations at the Henry Jackson Society, as much as 30% of the UK's electricity is going to be manufactured in a way or produ- produced in a way that is controlled by Chinese companies. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's amazing to see, actually, just, just how far on the investment on the business side we're going down into this line uh, of ever closer union with China, despite what the public might think. Yes. And are we more vulnerable as a country economically because of the pandemic in the sense that, I mean, you know, uh, China has obviously come out the other side of it. Um, They were able to do things that we couldn't really do in this country. Um, We see pictures coming from there of people, you know, mingling together, life pretty much returning Mm. to normal, business returning to normal. Um, Are we kind of hampered by our own situation because of what happened and because of the pandemic? We sure are. And you only need to look at the economic figures, whereas our economy is down 10 percent year on year. China's is up 2 percent year on year. Mm. Uh, And we're going to be left in a situation at the end of this pandemic where the country that is widely recognized to have caused the start of this is the is the chief beneficiary of the pandemic. Their economy is up. Ours is down. And it's one of these totemic uh, moments, I think, in global affairs in which in 20, 30 years, when we look back on this, when. I, I suspect we're going to be in the middle of something resembling the Cold War with China. We're going to say, well, shouldn't we have taken some tougher action there mm. where where there was this real moment where China leapfrogged us chiefly because of uh, a, a pandemic for which they're responsible? Yeah, certainly there were people uh, that I spoke to who were keen on trying to find some kind of sanction on China uh, for causing the world to basically have to lock down for the best part of a year. Um, but I suppose there's no chance of any kind of compensation being being proffered or indeed being sought. But interestingly, in this in this survey, 40, only 47% of people say they trust the United States to act responsibly uh, in their dealings with China because Joe Biden is more pro-China than Donald Trump was. Well, that's that seems to be the perception. And so far, it's difficult to tell, right? Joe Biden hasn't had to make any of the tough calls and his, his language is certainly much more moderated. Mm. Um, but the United States is still much tougher on China than the UK is, even under Biden. Uh, 
uh, Anthony Blinken, Biden's Secretary of State, this Foreign Secretary, has come out full, full guns blazing and said what is occurring in Xinjiang with the Uyghur people is a genocide. Mm. You couldn't get a government minister to tr say that if you tried for a month of Sundays. So actually, it's I can understand why the British public are skeptical because of the change in language. But the UK government is still actually risking a row with the US, it's our closest ally, over how weak we're being on the question of China. Yes. Yes, it's fascinating, isn't it? And last week, of course, we saw that story uh, from uh, from you guys about the uh, infiltration, for want of a better word, of our academic um, professions here in the UK and the uh, in the Russell universities from Chinese companies. And that uh, story was kind of up and down, has gone away, but obviously it hasn't gone away. Um, what are the implications there? Well, Mike, I can promise you that story uh, has not gone away. And I, I should think just in the, the next couple of days, uh, you and I might be speaking about that yeah. particular tale again. Okay. Uh, but look, universities have been the soft underbelly of the UK's uh, national security in this space, just as they have been the real problem in the woke wars, just as they've been the real problem in, in, in the trans debate. The universities have tried to move where the UK is on the question of China mm. far, far further than we're prepared to do. They, they, they've done anything in order to get Chinese money. Uh, and, and what makes you slightly... Uh, queasy almost, is that th these universities who, who love moralizing to us oh so much about how virtuous they are, about how progressive they are and all the rest of it, they're prepared to jump into bed with a regime that is literally locking up a million Muslims purely on the basis of their religion. Mm. So, you know, I'd like to see the next time one of these uh, university academics is on the BBC pontificating about how wonderful it would all be if we became a, a, a socialist Cuba style state. Just asked, you know, how are you prepared to work for an organization that is taking money off a regime that is committing the most barbarous acts of fascism we have seen since the Second World War? Yes. Yes, well, I'd be very interested to see the result of that kind of questioning because uh, I don't think they'd know quite how to answer it because hypocrisy, obviously, is the order of the day there, isn't it? Well, well, that's right. And uh, look, the, 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 what I find very amusing is that university academics that take British taxpayers' money are quite prepared to criticise the British government. But obviously China doesn't work that way. And uh, you know, there have been a number of stories over, over the years of academics that have been silenced on the question of China by, by the Chinese government. Um, but universities have got themselves in a real mess over this situation. They've got very financially dependent. There were some uh, studies done by a think tank called Onward last year that mm. showed just how reliant they are on um, overseas students and particularly Chinese national overseas students. Uh, and the reality is dozens of British universities would go bankrupt if, if the, the flow of Chinese students and of the money they bring were, were to dry up. That's fascinating. Well, we'll look to uh, to see the next instalment of that particular story, Sam. Thank you very much indeed. Sam Armstrong from the Henry Jackson Society there talking about why uh, so many people in this country are suspicious of China, uh, think that it is a critical threat. Uh, I'm not sure uh, what our policy should be towards them, but certainly uh, probably would say we should not be getting into bed with them in any way, shape or form in terms of nuclear power. And we certainly shouldn't be getting into bed with them uh, in terms of communication strategies, 5G and all the rest of it. But look out uh, for a new story uh, on their connections with the academ academic world in this uh, country as well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Let's talk now to Dr Nick Johnson, paediatric hospital-based uh, doctor in Cambridgeshire. Nick, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. Thank you for inviting me on to talk. Not at all. Thank you very much for, for joining us. We hear from an awful lot of uh, virologists. We hear from an awful lot of uh, of doctors in various different roles in, in the NHS. You're a, a specifically a children's doctor. And obviously, we've, we've been very concerned. I mean, I've got two teenage kids myself. Um, we've all been very concerned about how they're coping with, with not being at school at the moment. Um, from a sort of medical perspective, what, what are you seeing where you are? Um, well, I think you, you referred to it in the in the trail for this um, collateral damage. I think is the point that we are seeing with the uh, the, the pediatric population, mm. and that's across all age ranges, from the very young to the the teenage age range. To, to cut a long story short, um, there has been increased levels of uh, mental health distress, and in particular areas, and an area that was highlighted by the Royal College of Pediatrics was that of um, feed um, food restriction and, and, and anorexia is one thing we've seen rocket in terms of its presentation right. uh, 
as, as well as, uh, you know, at a, at a, a level of things around things like low mood, moving on to depression and anxiety. It, it's very much the collateral damage, as you've described. Yes. And, and I do worry that the children have been, um, they've not necessarily been forgotten about, but they have, it's been a kind of an easy um, move to try and solve the problems of the wider COVID pandemic and the, the needs of the children and the paediatric population have not always been recognised, hence the reason I wanted to speak out today. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a sense, is there not, in, in some parts of government that the kids will be OK. You know, they're very resilient. They're much more resilient than we know that they are and they can adapt to all kinds of things. But, I mean, I've been talking to lots of, of parents over the course of the last year, really. Um, and, you know, for us, for example, you know, we've done things in life. You know, we've travelled, we've been places, we've had jobs, we've had responsibilities. For a lot of these kids, particularly kind of young teenagers, they're feeling kind of lost because they haven't done anything and they don't know whether they ever will. Yeah, no, no, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Inevitably, that, that feeling of a, a, a lack of control over your life from things that you have been doing on a regular basis, be it the routines of going to school, the routines of uh, extracurricular activities and the benefits you get from the buzz of uh, meeting, socialising and, and participating in exercise. Um, they've been taken away and, and there is an element of feeling people, you know, Adults feel it as well, but the children are just as much feel bereft, and and they have their their own concerns about fears of infection. It, it you know one of the maybe brighter points in the COVID pandemic has been that maybe the numbers of children affected seriously have been relatively low. But that doesn't mean to say that they've not been scared as much as the uh, the older and their own population and the parents. Yeah, and also they may well be worried for their parents or for their grandparents or their elderly relatives because we've got this constant sort of barrage of propaganda from the government saying, you know, if you go outside, uh, you might kill your granny or you might, you know, cause somebody to die. And I think that's really misplaced. I I, I, I would recognise that. I know uh, children have been worried about, you know, parents like myself going off to work. But it's also true, you know, people who are on the front line, be they working out in you know, supermarkets as uh, school teachers or, or in the prison services, parents going out to work on the front line, you know, just exposure to going down to the shops. Children have been concerned and, and that's promoted anxiety and, and, and low, low mood. Absolutely right. And a lot of parents as well, I think, are struggling. And, and you'll probably know this better than me, um, Nick, in terms of, you know, they're not really destined to be teachers. They don't really... Are they, I mean, it's, it's probably sounds silly to say it for people who don't have children, but but a lot of parents are not equipped to look after their own children 24 seven. Um, you know, they need them to go to school. They need them to learn and to mix with other people, you know, and it must be quite stressful for a lot of people. Absolutely. Parents, you know, maybe just want to be parents. You know, we don't necessarily always want to be teachers. And mm. if there's one thing that's come out of this, I speak as a sort of as a, a frontline NHS worker. I was so grateful that my children have been able to go into school. I mean, be it called COVID school, the COVID yeah. kids. But, you know, it's only through, you know, that the support of those people supporting our kids and, and allowing some continuity for their lives that I've been forever grateful. I, you know, I, I absolutely recognise the challenges for children who, you know, particularly uh, children who are on their own at home in more challenged socioeconomic situations. But the the idea that we can all um, sort of turn, take, you know, turn a hand to undertaking education and all the complexities of that. If there's one thing I guess I've recognised from my own friends and sort of socialising is that uh, the, the teaching profession has got a whole load of more respect because of the, <laughs> the ability of they have to do to. To, to help our children, you know, in loco parentis. Yes, it's very true. And I, I know many parents, and I could probably count myself among them, who at times over the last year, I mean, I, I, one of my sons is uh, uh, was due to do his uh, GCSEs last summer, and so therefore didn't really have anything to do, had no homeschooling or homework to do uh, when schools closed after Easter because he was more or less going to be re- revising for his exams, which never happened. He then got, you know, the imaginary grades that he got, and he did quite well, but even saying that, makes no sense because you know he just they just made it up and it was great but I mean it's very difficult to motivate him if he feels unmotivated because I can't you know I can't convince him to go and you know study if he doesn't feel like it because I don't want to mess up his, his head. Uh, I, I think we share a very similar sort of demographic with our own families there Mike yeah. so I, I can acknowledge that uh, 100%. Yeah I mean so so for, for and, and you know I mean without wishing to sound 
smug. You know, you and I are probably uh, at the upper end of, of, of educating our own children and not everybody is able to do it, uh, never mind willing to do it. And an awful lot of kids, I'm sure, and it's, it's being said that an awful lot of kids in, in lower income households are, are really suffering. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's, it has the effects of COVID-19 and how we've had our social isolation, the reliance on our uh, education is much more uh, affected negatively those in the so socio-economic uh, age um, classes. It, it, it's also in the terms of the actual out health outcomes. Mm. But, it, you know, it, it is a particular concern uh, to paediatricians like myself that um, the long-term effects of the of covid uh, 19 pandemic are going to be very long lived and I, and I, I can only hope that in amongst the you know the conversations that you have today and the message that's been sent to our government is that we're looking at you know what are the preparations not just for getting us out of uh, lockdown but also what are we going to do in the years following that because there is going to be some huge knock on effects and in in sort of preparing for that uh, the release of the population and you know the, the and, and and the relief that we will all have there are going to be we, we don't want to leave people behind particularly those who've been most badly affected by yeah. it and presumably psychologically for for a lot of children um they'll always have this with them won't they they'll always remember 2020 as the year that kind of everything stopped and everything paused and nothing really happened for them and and it could for some be a sort of um you know a harbinger of something worse that they might it might somehow affect them in the way that they'll think well this could happen again or you know my my future could be in interrupted my present could be interrupted at any moment and all of the things that they knew to be true in 2019 maybe they don't believe anymore i i, I could only agree i i i think that's probably not unique to the to our to our children mm. i think there's a sense of that all of our lives will be recognised that 2020 used to be a reference to sort of good vision. Now 2020 is the year that we, it all changed. Yeah. So I, I, I recognise that uh, kind of um, further analysis of our lives. And, and what about, um, what about Nick, your view on the way that schools are coping with it and how they plan to cope? I've seen um, different sort of instructions from different schools, different parents have sent me things. I've seen one uh, in which they're saying that, uh, you know, when they go back to school, kids are going to have to eat uh, in a different way. They're going to have to have uh, to take the mask off to eat, but we're not going to let them speak because that would be wrong. You know, is there a worry uh, from your point of view uh, in, in in the medical business that, that schools are being a little bit too cautious and, and trying to kind of prevent something which is not really preventable? I, I I wouldn't really have, I don't have a clear opinion on that if I'm honest, Mike. I think uh, the, the, it's kind of from a point of view of the schools, they're, they're damned if they are and damned if they don't. I mean, mm. I think if they're following the standard advice about making sure that those who are in the educational environment are you know following social distancing rules, they're washing their hands, taking the appropriate precautions, and that's also you, it extends into how do you get kids into school safely through school transport. The meeting at school gates. I, I, I think as a whole that, that, you know, for what we were asking of all these educational establishments and the professionals that work within them to suddenly become public health experts, you know, dissect down information from sort of public health England. I, I'm pretty sure they've done the best they can in the circumstances. And I, I personally have no individual complaints and I right. only just respect what's been done in, in my own experience okay. from my own children. And what, and what about, and I don't want to sort of ask you to go into areas that you're not familiar with or you don't want to talk about, but what about this idea that we're now going to consider vaccinating children? Um, obviously, the, the, there's been a conversation about vaccinating teachers in terms of uh, trying to keep them safer. I've always said, well, if you want to do that, fine. Uh, maybe vaccinate the ones who are older before you do the ones who are younger. But is there any point in vaccinating children? It's a very good question, Mike. And, and I have to say, when I heard the news, I was there was a part of me very pleased about it. But at the same time, I was also quite surprised. You know, the facts are out there that COVID per se for the paediatric population hasn't been the uh, had the huge devastating effects in terms of an acute respiratory illness. Mm. Uh, we do know about some atypical uh, infections which were, relate to the kind of issue, what we previously would call Kawasaki's disease. I, I, I do, however, have my concerns about the long COVID situation that is beginning to see coming through in the paediatric population. Um, and, and, and speaking as somebody who, as a clinician who has done some 
background work around vaccines in the past, uh, I very much remember the whole issue of trying to gain support when um, the whole issue about the MMR uh, vaccination yeah. um, concerns came along and trying to keep uh, parents on board with that. Um, I, I'm, I'm very pro immunisation and if, if offered, I would be encouraging it. I just thought the actual challenges to um, to get families and children to take part in the kind of experiments, uh, you know, that would be, you know, the trials that would be required mm. would be um, would, would maybe be a step too far. But if if we can uh, safely do it, as we have done it, so, you know, as we, you know, evidence and I, I speak as somebody who is very grateful to be vaccinated myself, um, I don't I wouldn't want to exclude children from the benefits of being a, a, avoiding some of the more uh, very poor and bad effects that COVID has has led to. Yeah, sure. And as far as just the final um, um, question is concerned, I mean, you're seeing obviously um, a reasonable number of, of children coming through your your clinic uh, as a, as a paediatrician. Is it is it? I mean, you've you've sort of touched upon it already, but I mean, are you seeing anything different than say this time last year? Well, <laughs> a very strange experience for paediatricians as a whole is that because of the social distancing that we have seen in 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 some unusual ways we've seen less of the traditional uh respiratory illnesses and infective illnesses that come over the winter period and you probably ask most pediatricians that what we call the bronchiolitis season never really happened over the winter now that, that was because we undertook social distancing within our society and thank god we did because that's been part of how in to, to reduce the covid 19 prevalence in this uh, in the community mm. um as, apart from reiterating the issue that where there are uh, problems around uh, mental health and uh, anxieties depression low mood that can often present in um what we would call sort of non-organic symptoms so people complaining of unexplicable headaches yeah. abdominal pains which is just as disabling and is just as horrible for the parents and for the children involved but, and so we're obviously having to investigate them, thankfully finding nothing uh, serious from a you know, pathological point of view. But still, we need to manage those children. So that's been a, a change. Um, and, of course, we have learned a little bit about the more atypical forms of COVID-19 in children, which is a kind of a type of illness that I've not sort of previously seen and so severely um, in my own experience over sort of 25 years. Mm. Um but, you know, we, we've we've learned to manage it in different ways. We've had to be put in PPE, we've worn masks, and I, I look forward to a time when I can uh, interact with my patients and their families uh, without those um, without those barriers in terms of body language and, and just an, an improved experience for all. I think the children have been remarkably resilient at how they've managed to get through and when they have come up to the hospital. Absolutely right. Well, listen, Dr. Nick, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for, for, for letting us know about how the business of, of looking after people is going. Uh, it's always helpful to get different perspectives on it. Dr. Nick Johnson, paediatric hospital-based doctor there, focusing uh, on A&E as well as general wards in Cambridgeshire. Uh, interesting. Uh, if you've got children, uh, you'll be very, very interested to know when they're going to go back to school, what the school is going to look like for them, because, of course, uh, as Neil Oliver was saying, uh, one of his uh, uh, children out of the three children is going back and is is very very happy about it and can't, can't wait to get back and see his friends but if they're going to be uh, imposing all kinds of strange and unusual um, procedures such as you know you're not allowed to talk to one another when you're having lunch you're not allowed to go anywhere without wearing a mask you can only sit uh, so far apart from one another you know it's a very different picture that their kids are going back to school for and that, I think, uh, is worthy of some conversation as well. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.